Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, today I have on the program two writers, Angela Buckingham and Robin Bishop. Um, they've each had their short stories published in the feminist poetry and fiction anthology called It's All Connected. Um, it's edited by Pauline Hopkins and produced by Spinifex Press. So welcome, Angela and Robbie. Thank you. So let me just talk a little bit about the anthology to begin with. Um, Gail Jones describes the anthology as a feisty, vigorous and eclectic volume. Carmel Bird describes the book as a bold and elegant feminist fanfare. Um, so it, it, it's, it was an incredible piece of work. Um, thank you for that. What was it like to be selected for the anthology or what was your process in finding your way into the anthology? Um, well, I uh, had, was having my book um, edited by Pauline Hopkins and um, she said she was um, uh, putting together an anthology and would I write a short story um, and see if it was good enough to go in it. So I did write a story and um, presented it to her and it was accepted for the anthology, which was fantastic and it was my first um, go at writing short stories. Wow, so that your very first short story. Yeah. Awesome. And you, Angela, I know you've got a background too of um, other playwriting and stuff. Yeah, I've done other sorts of writing and again... Um, I think Helen had a – Pauline, sorry, that's her sister. Pauline had a process of reaching out to women writers who she knew. She seems to know everyone. She's very well connected. And she asked me to submit to the anthology and I actually put in three stories and she came back and chose the one she wanted. So th there was a very strong editorial vi vision and um, Spinifex champions a lot of women writers as a feminist publishing house, obviously. Mm -hmm. And they had a very clear vision of, I think, what they wanted and, and the variety, diversity, different voices, different writing styles, different perspectives that they wanted to capture. Yeah, okay. And it's very different. There's so much stuff in there. Very diverse uh, work in there. Um, so your, while I'm talking to you, Angela, we'll go with you. Um, your story, Get Back In, is a haunting tale about two school friends who are alike in so many ways, like twins, yet you set the story around, I quote, the night that made the difference, in which a momentary, inexplicable decision alters the course of history for the character. The reader is left to consider the weight of the unconscious mind in this moment. Now, I won't give away the ending, but I wonder if your intention was to reflect on the unconscious choices that we make. It, it absolutely is about the unconscious choices, but also that cocktail of joy and fear and the drive for excitement, desire to kind of cut links with childhood that happens around adolescence and there's sort of a cauldron of potential and risk and why some people go through that time and come out okay and some people don't yeah it's a it's a really 
difficult. <laughs> um, I've got two teenagers at the moment. I was going to ask you about that as well, actually, in terms of that your focus, this teenage focus. So you, you've chosen this pivotal time and you capture the teenage need to take risks on page 213, which I'll ask you to read in a moment if you wouldn't mind doing. But um, So it provokes this interesting question. Do you think the teenagers in this story embrace life to the full or do you think they take life for granted? For me, it was definitely about the moment when you understand that really bad things can happen. Mm. And I, I guess a lot of it comes from my own experience. I know that for most of my teenagehood, I always assumed I'd get through okay. Yeah. You know, that, yes, it might be tight and you'd get into scrapes and troubles and fall off things and fall out of things and, you know, the police would run in one door and you'd go out the other. Um, but and, and I guess that's a sort of privilege that some kids don't grow up with, but I grew up with that idea that I'd be okay. And looking back at my teenage cohorts, some of us weren't. Yeah. Would you mind reading that little section for us, please? Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you. I have no memory of where we thought we were going. It was very late. Michelle wasn't worried about being pulled over because she hadn't had that much to drink, but the pill was clearly having some impact because as we drove, she opened the car door for a little air. She drove along with her car door hanging open. Even after all my beers, that registered, but it wasn't a conscious risk assessment. I was doing a lot of stupid things then. Stupid drugs, stupid sex, stupid games like shoplifting scavenger hunts, swimming in other people's pools, rock climbing, breaking onto the roofs of office buildings, hiking up to the edge of bushfires before we stopped hitchhiking to anywhere. We were so bored. We needed risk. Still, the open car door registered. Yeah, that captures a lot about teenage life. Thank you so much, Angela. Yeah. Can I just um, ask you, Robbie, um, about your story a little bit? So The Lonely Road is the name of your story, and it's the tale of a survivor, Annie, who experienced a sexual assault in her youth. We witness Annie's difficult journey and her path to recovery. I love the very first line in your story, uh, time is slow in the garden. You begin the story in a place far from the focus of your story. Was this intended to give the reader a bit of distance from the events? Well, this um, particular story is based on a true story that I was involved in somewhat 40-odd years ago, mm -hmm. and I've tried to write the story into a play or a novel several times and have never succeeded. Um, so I felt that with the distance now between me and the time it happened and the fact that I'm older, I could approach the story from a different perspective, that of the survivor, and write it in a different way. Um, yes, yeah. and, and um, we start with, with Annie there, um, but I also wanted the reader to realise that um, it had taken a long time for Annie to get over her trauma. So when we meet her at the beginning, she's in her 60s, and the trauma happened quite a long time ago, so... She's, you know, it's still with her. Yeah. Yeah. And you also end in a different place, one of positivity. It seems that um, she's used her experience to create something positive. Yeah. 
So was that important for you to include in the story I as well? I think so. For heaven's sake, we all need hope, don't we? <laughs> we do. I, I think that um, Annie worked through it in her life, the whole thing. It took a long time to get to the point where she was a survivor. So that it's important to have her um, feel like that. She, she does a lot of painting Mm-hmm. and um, her association with the women around her and her students at school. Um, I was yeah. a teacher so um, of teenagers, so the, the kids at school bring a lot of stuff out in you and, and you look at them and, and um, you hope that they will, you know, get through their life um, making the right choices. Yeah. Yes, and, um, you know, succeeding, and I think... Annie believes that this generation of young people can perhaps cope with things better with mm. and perhaps fight against, uh, you know, sexual violence and change things. I perhaps. hope so as well, yeah. yes. Would you mind reading a little bit from your story um, as of well? Of course, I'd love to. The Lonely to. Road. Thank you. On page 33. Okay. Oh, miss, you're going to be famous. Can we come? What do you paint, miss? You've never told us. I paint women, replied Annie, smiling. She didn't tell them that the women represented various phases in her own life, her innocence before the rape, the days she couldn't get out of bed after Nick and Robbo walked free, her graduation when she got so drunk she passed out, the various locked rooms of her life where she kept the light on all night and the days where she witnessed girlfriends get married and pretended to be happy. Fantastic. Thank you so much for that. Um, both of your work is, is very moving. Um, I really enjoyed it a lot. Thank you so much. Could We've got a little bit of time just to tell me perhaps about your writing journey, both of you. Oh, wow. Well, I'll go first, don't I? Is yeah. That right? Yeah, okay. Um, I didn't really start writing solo until I was in my mid-40s. I um, have a drama theatre background and I'm a, a drama teacher. So I was lucky enough to work with uh, um, groups of uh, people like theatre and education team mm-hmm. and a women's group and actually devise our own plays together. So there were a lot of voices coming in, a lot of writing, and we'd, we'd work together. It's the same that I did with my students at school when we did some of our performances. We wrote the plays together. Um, so when I started to write, I, it was only normal that I went to I went for plays. Mm, and okay. um, I actually had a play, my first play, um, called Only the End, except it for the VCE performance uh, drama playlist that the kids had to study. Excellent. uh, Yeah, so that was a really amazing way to start because being a teacher myself and having the students come into this play was was, um, fantastic. And it was done at La Mama at Mm -hmm. Carlton Ford House and published by Currency Press. Mm -hmm. So um, then I decided, okay, I can write some more plays, so I did. Um, But they're... Mostly my work is based on somebody's story, you know, fictionalised, but, yeah. yeah so, Thank you so much. Um, Angela, just one last quick question. Um, have you got anything on at the moment or how is, what's, your, what's your journey? It's, I know that you're a playwright as well. Do you have anything that you're working on currently? Yes, I'm actually I'm working on a play with the Shift Theatre called Eat Your Heart Out and it's a comedy about two very wealthy women who have everything and one of them realises they don't have the meaning of life and that's a product that's wow. never on sale, hard to find, but the ultimate status symbol. 
Oh, I love it. You've got a sound bite and everything. Yeah. <laughs> so that's going to be on um, next year. Next year. Shift, okay. Yeah. Thank yeah. you so much. So the nature of your your story, you touch on some really um, some really interesting points, and one of them, you really contemplate the nature of what it means to be alive through the character Miranda. You talk about her not being alive, and 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 the nature, I guess. And and I wanted to ask: Is this something that you contemplate? Um, in this story. We never hear Miranda's perspective. So it's somebody else who's gone on to have a different life and had different opportunities and has obviously moved away from where these girls grew up. Um, And she looks back at Miranda and she feels Miranda's not alive. Mm. Um, And she judges Miranda's lack of capacity Um, I guess it came from a place where when I look back at my own adolescence, there were a number of actually car accidents involving alcohol where there was this idea that we, we talk about the road toll and we count the people who die, but we don't look at the people who live with really serious injury. Yeah. Um, and that injury can take many forms, um, it's making the story sound very dark and very heavy because it's actually it's wrapped up in that sort of the the joy of being young and adventurous. I think, and I think with every story there has to be something, some sort of you know, point of gravitas, which this story definitely has. And there's um, you know in the story as well is is um, that kind of youthful you know spirit and what it means to be a teenager and that sort of throwing everything to the wall but then also this kind of funny kismet that that or some sort of connection thing that happens for this character which is really believable and our character the, the heroine of the story she goes on she lives her life she travels she does what she you know thought she would she she lives her life very fully and it's her reflecting back like even at the time i don't That's think right. she at the time she realizes the full impact and gravity of what's happened mm, um, interesting and it's it's about being it's about having the privilege of being able to look back yeah exactly well thank you for that and that that story i hope everyone gets to read that story it's fantastic now before we came into the studio, we were talking about the other kinds of writing work that that we all do, and um, you mentioned that you um, you write plays, and we were talking about the process of um, writing a play, and you were saying that you sometimes need to leave space for the actor in in that as well. Tell me about that. Well, both Robin and I are playwrights, um, and at the moment I'm very, very lucky to be working with a group of creatives who I really trust. So the play I've written at the moment, Eat Your Heart Out, I actually wrote for two actors. For me, that's the other way around. Like Usually you have an idea, you write it, then you find the director, the caster, and cast the, the play. Whereas with this piece of work... I know these two actors. I love working with these two actors because they're so talented and creative and fabulous. What and are that's their names? Just... Helen Hopkins and Carolyn Bock. Okay. And they're the principals of the Shift Theatre. Okay. And I actually wrote the play for them. With them in mind. So it's a very different creative experience. Yes. Um, 
The amazing thing is that um, I've also worked with Helen and Caro. Um, in my first play, both of them were in it, and um, Helen did several more of my plays as well. So oh. I are, are you aware of writing for their cadence, their voice? Does that influence you at all? Well, they're both very versatile. They're very experienced actresses and they're very versatile. So um, I was, in thinking of the story, I took the age sort of range they're in um, and I know when you say their cadence, I know their range and I know how far it can go. And in the play, like, we push it all the way. It's, and it's a lot of fun working with people who have that kind of... Um, vocal, physical, emotional, creative capacity. Uh, so. Do you visualise that? when? Absolutely, and I can hear them. Like yeah. sometimes they're sitting on my shoulders and, you know, I can be thinking about anything else and I'll have them sort of twittering in the background. You know? That's when you know you really have nailed the character, when yeah. you can really hear the, that character's voice in your head. Yeah. I can imagine. Then that, that's something that um, – then you know you're really writing for, the, for, for them. Yeah, they're, 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 they're like the Statler and Waldorf of um, my imagination. <laughs> or some people have an angel and a devil on their shoulders. These two are two devils, like just sitting there. There, you know. So, how do you cope then with the rehearsal process? Do you, uh, once you've written for them and you have them very specifically in your mind, do you let them get on with it for a bit, or do you go to a lot of rehearsals and kind of um, perhaps change the script according to how they are playing it? Um, Robin and I have, have spoken about this too. The director is also a key author in the production of a play like that. Yeah. Um, and at the end of the day. I see the director as the creative captain of that particular creative ship. Yeah. Um, and I very, very much work with the director. The director in this case is Peter Horton, who's a fabulous director. Um, and at the moment, we're actually still building and tweaking the script. We've done a series of readings. Uh, we hope to do development through October. Also, for comedy, you want something that's fast and, you know, really sparks. Um, and... Yeah, it's, it's a multi-way process, wouldn't you say, Robin? It definitely is, and I totally agree with you in the way, you know, that you work. It's like the director is the captain of, the, of what's happening, but it's such a wonderful thing to have that give and take with your actors and be able to be in on the process. That's true. And I just will add there that I've just written my short story oh. into a play. And what's the name? And it's called The play? Lonely Road Still, yeah. but okay. I've, I've expanded it, and um, I also have... Caro and Helen in mind of playing the two main Fantastic. characters. So. Do you have any details, any dates yet of perhaps no, when look, that might be? Mine is ju- on? I've only just done a reading okay. with them um, a few weeks ago, uh, and have yeah, um, I'm just not sure where to go with this. Okay, now. so it's just go a back to the moment. It's there. Research and it's development. That, it's, yeah, yeah, but it's um, once you've written a play. You have to do it. <laughs> well, you'll have to keep us informed about when it goes on so we can Please let people Please come back know. and let us know and, um, and we'd love to hear the details. Thank you so much for joining us today, Robin and Angela. That was It's All Connected is the name of the anthology, in case you missed it, edited by Pauline Hopkins and published by Spin Effects Press. Please go and grab yourself a copy. Where do we find one? I think all good bookstores. Yes, or yeah. online at Spin Effects Press. Yep.